We're taking care of business, and I'm Rob Rose. I'm Juliette Televi, and this is where we deliver the backstory behind the big business stories of the day. This week we're discussing class action lawsuits, not a common legal tool in South Africa, but used to great effect by the victims of silicosis poisoning in South, Afri- South Africa's mines, who made history last year with a five billion rand settlement. The lawyer representing those miners was Richard Spoor, who's also represented the Eastern Cape Villages, opposing an application to mine the West Coast's titanium-rich sands. And he's taken up the fight now on behalf of 218 people who died from listeriosis after eating poisoned food churned out by a Tiger Brands factory in Polokwane in 2017. I first met Richard Spoor um, probably more than a decade ago uh, on the silicosis matter, and and, um, it was amazing to find a lawyer who actually had a heart and a brain in the the same entity. It was amazing. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, Richard, this is, uh, if we start off by talking about Tiger Brands before mm-hmm. we start, uh, talk about class action lawsuits in general, mm-hmm. I imagine this could be a humdinger battle. Um, certainly Tiger Brands said that they're going to oppose, um, uh, defend uh, the, uh, the action brought against them. Um, do you think um, it's a, uh, I mean, what have your interactions with Tiger mm-hmm. Brands been to date? I think the the, the, the the main feature, the thing that stands out for me is the um, the different role played by the insurer and the company. And it's the insurer that calls the shots. I've seen the insurers kind of typically behind the scenes, you know, quiet and in the background. And you don't know who they are and you don't know what they're doing and what influence they have. Um, but yeah, the guys in the black suits at the back of the, back of the office. Uh, neatly manicured and they look <laughs> good. And... Um, yeah, they, they play a very prominent role. They're, they're funding the litigation. We saw in the SENS announcement the other day they, they're going to pay the damages, the conventional damages that might be awarded. And um, I assume that in terms of these insurance contracts, as we're paying for the fees and the costs and the damages, um, we'll control the process. So, um, look, I'm sure they deny it, but I, I sense the kind of the tension between the company who's very anxious to get the thing over and done with, and the insurance company whose attitude appears to me to be simply to pay as little as they have to. Which you would expect, which guess, you would from expect, the insurance company. Which you would expect, but you know, there's a, there's a process, there's a bargaining that takes place, and if you prepare to bargain and if you prepare to move on certain things, you can reach an accommodation much quicker and you can resolve the matter in good faith. If you want to wring it out and require us to prove every head of damages and every claim, um, it can turn out into a long, drawn-out and torturous affair. Um, that said, I really don't think it's going to be a humdinger of a battle. I mean, the, the case is um, overwhelmingly strong. The issue that's come up um, of late is, is, is that we issued summons and incorporated in that summons is a claim for punitive damages. Um, the punitive damages are interesting in two respects. One, it's not usual. It, it's, there's not really provision in the law for it. We saw something about it in the life is it a many matter um, when Dichang Mosen, Judge Dichang Moseneke awarded punitive awards of a million rand to the families of each of these yeah. mentally handicapped people who died. Um, so there is some kind of precedent and there's a fair amount of case law about it. Um, and we're basing this on the gross nature of their violations and the violation of, 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 of people's constitutional rights. We're also, but what's interesting and what you see in the SENS announcement is 
those claims aren't covered by the insurance policy. So that's why they issued the notice to alert shareholders to say, well, there's another claim here, and that is not covered by the policy. So, you know, this is obviously something of interest. Yeah. So we, we're going to wait and see how they plead. Do they accept? I think, you know, they may, they, they may accept to the particulars of claim. Um, um, they may accept to these punitive damages. That might lead to a, a fight. But you've got to be pretty brave to go into a court and argue this question of punitive damages, whether they're allowed in our law or not. Um, because a ruling against you would have quite significant consequences. So maybe they've got an appetite for it. But it's a difficult one because you're facing the pleadings. The pleadings make out a very strong case, um, a damning case. Mm. Now, you've got to argue the legal point by reference only to the pleadings. You can't come and mitigate around the corners. We must accept the worst possible case, which is the case we make out, and then you've got to explain why. Our law doesn't apply for punitive damages. So the idea, I mean, I can be fairly upfront of it, is also to create a bit of a push the gap between Tiger and its insurer, mm. and also to, um, you know, to a bit of a stick to... Move the companies along and, and, and basically say, look, uh, you've you got to deal with this thing. You've got to sort this thing out as soon as possible. I mean, you, you say it's not likely to be a humdinger of a battle, but, you know, you, that tension you described, mm -hmm. then surely the insurer will want to prove every single thing. For them, they don't care about the company's reputation or the fact that the company will be seen to be completely um, heartless to be arguing that it killed so many people. Well, I think that's so, but you know, insurers are also in a market and they've got clients and they've got customers and they've got to keep their customers sweet. You know, I mean, Tiger must be a big client. They must pay a lot of money towards these insurers. So I don't think it helps insurance companies to be, um, you know, overly difficult. I think they have an interest in looking after their clients and meeting the claims and avoiding, you know, bad discomfort and embarrassment for the client. So it's an interesting dynamic. In the United States, um, disclosure about insurance is upfront. It's part of the process. We know who the insurers are. You know where they are. You're dealing with them. It's open in South Africa. It's very rare. I've seen them. I mean, the same lawyers all the time in the background sitting there when you're up against Sassel or any other large corporates and watching the accident inquiries and the like. And you might chat to them and they talk to you a little bit and it's kind of a relationship, but I've never seen them so upfront. Um, and that's quite interesting and I think it's quite refreshing as well. I mean, let's know who we, let's not play with. games, let's know who we're dealing with and let's know what your attitude is and your approach. I mean, I, what I want to know is, and I don't know if you've put any figures yet on what you would be claiming from Tigers because there's mm. a two-step process, isn't there? And well, according mm. to the SEND statement that mm. came out was mm. um, pleading uh, liability mm. and then quantum of damages yeah um yeah let's let let us focus a little bit on the merits i said that i said that we got a really slam dunk case so what we know from the the data put together by the nicd is that tiger was producing contaminated foodstuffs from that polokwane factory for about 17 months now during that 17 month period they either never detected this contamination, or if they did, they didn't respond. Either, either of them damning. are problematic. What makes it particularly problematic is when the Department of Health finally tracked down the source from a, a crash in Soweto where they found the product was contaminated. They rushed up to Pulakwani. 
They went in there, they did 170 samples. Of those 170 samples, 70, seven tie, proved positive for the stereo mono, monocytogenies. They then went to the Germiston factory shop where they sell their products, some from Germiston, some from Polokwane in a factory shop. They went in there, they took 13 samples, they tested them. Seven of 13 tested positive for um, the stereo monocytogenies. Now, if the Department of Health in one sweep can find those levels of contamination, mm. I mean, how is it possible? And if you think, you know, they're producing ready-to-eat products. These are products that you warrant are good to eat. I mean, you know, you can open a packet of Viennas and you can eat them. That's uh, it's a guarantee. You well, slice this along. I don't know many people who do that now. <laughs> yeah, but that's the promise, you know. That's the yeah. promise. That's the undertaking you give. You don't have to cook a Vienna before you eat it, and you don't have to cook bologna. You certainly don't cook bologna before you eat it. So you're warranting that it's safe, and that means mm. when people buy these products, they keep them in a the fridge, but they can keep them for days. I mean, they can last a long time in a fridge. Um, Listeria is a known threat, a known danger. I mean, it's got a fatality rate for people who develop a kind of a neural form, you know, if it gets into your brain, meningitis or encephalitis, of, um, you know, between 20 and 30% fatality rate. And that's mm. pretty much what we've seen in this instance, I mean, 216, 218 deaths um, out of a thousand something cases. Um, this is a known product and the substance can breed in fridges. So if it's in the food, the longer you keep that food in your fridge, it's multiplying and it's going forth and the more of it there is, the more dangerous it becomes. Yeah. Um, so it's not as if this is a sudden surprise or this is shocking or anything. Um, then, um, so it's, you know, the, the, they really should have been aware. I mean, it's in, unthinkable that this happened. And if you look at the consequences of their actions, I mean, we've got the 200 plus people dead. That is two out of 10 died. But then you've got a whole lot of miscarriages and stillbirths that aren't classified amongst those deaths. Add another 150, 100 to 150 babies. And then you're coming to the true toll here. You're talking about 300, 350 people, infants, putative babies died. Mm. I mean, that's, that's, that's appalling. I mean, mm. you know, this is an industrial scale disaster. Um, and they've acknowledged the outbreak comes from their factory. I mean, genetic sequencing demonstrates it unequivocally. Um, among the thousand odd cases, there may be well, you know, a few background cases because South Africa does have a background of you know, 10, 20 cases per year, but overwhelmingly these cases come from that factory and that it went on for so long is, is shocking. So the question is how and why? You know, you get interesting hints, you get suggestions. One thing is they decided to use in-house laboratory services. So the information we have is that a year before this outbreak or sometime before this outbreak, they put out a tender to labs to provide the services, decided it was too expensive, put them in-house. And we have a sense that that's where the problems may have come from. It's like an internally commissioned forensic report, which clears you, you know? Mm, mm. It'll be interesting to see if they audit the internal processes and things like that. Um, but it's going to be it's going to be hard for Tiger. I mean, which is why I really can't imagine that, you know, we're going to go to trial on the merits.
So uh, when it comes to the issue of liability, you feel that that's fairly clear cut? It's clear cut, you know. The, the quantum is, is, is problematic. Um, one of the reasons it's problematic is that our law doesn't really place much value on the life of infants or old people. So, um, you know, there's no, um, they're not breadwinners. Um, so technically, you know, the mother may cry and weep and be distressed and so on, but that's not actionable either. Um, you know, emotional shock becomes actionable if it results in a psychiatric condition, PTSD or depression or something like that. Um, otherwise, you know, grief and anger and unhappiness is not actionable. So your claims are typically limited to funeral costs and medical expenses. So one of the reasons behind the, 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 the punitive damages is we need to change that. I mean, you can't kill my kid and then expect you know, to cover the funeral costs and walk away. It's mm. wrong. And that's what motivated Absolutely. the life essay in many cases. Yeah. Well, I mean, you kill one of those handicapped people. Uh, Where's the loss to the family? You know, I mean, what, are the, what use are these people anyway? You know, they're not really productive. They're not useful. They're not really helping. And the judge says, well, this is a bad thing. And that means there's a problem with our law. Our law is conservative and it's wrong. So we're working up an argument around, around what is the appropriate damages for you know, someone who kills your child, or what's the appropriate damage of someone who kills your father? You know, my, my dad went walking with a dog and uh, a Labrador, and his Labrador sort of had a kind of barked at somebody else's dog, and the man who was walking the other dog, you know, pushed my father and knocked him over and kicked him and broke his femur, and a few weeks later he was dead. You know, um, what's that worth? You know, in the South African mm. law, it's not it's not much. The law is wrong. There's a there's a there's a problem. And and what's what's quite fun is is looking at the law. So looking at um, looking at the possibility of litigating on behalf of violation of rights because it's quite interesting. You know, if I defame you, if I impugn your personality, you know, I, I impair your dignity. I have a defamation claim. But I, if I'm if I impair your right to your bodily integrity or to a safe and healthy environment, or to a family, which is part of your right to dignity, our courts say, no, we, we don't award punitive damages for that kind of thing. So that's bizarre, you know, there's something mm. wrong here that our fundamental rights, our constitutional rights are not actionable and you can't get compensation for the violation, the gross violation of those rights. Um, so Richard, I mean, you know, forgive me, that is a, a slightly strange way of putting it when you said there's a bit of fun here. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's a tragic case, but I suppose uh, as for you as a lawyer, it must be, I mean, you almost, I suppose you want to set some precedence. Is that? You, you're, you're, you're kind of looking for an argument. It's really, I mean, you're reading old textbooks, you're reading English law, you're reading Roman Dutch law. You're talking to, you know, old practitioners, Kind of classical lawyers, you're trying to work up an argument. I mean, but constitutional law will give you give no, you rights. Right? I don't. I'm not. Bill of Rights. I mean, uh, rights uh, dignity is. Uh, Richard no, is gesticulating wildly here for the know, viewers, you, uh, listeners. You can't see this. You've got to. You've got to begin afresh. You've got to begin somewhere at the bottom. You know, m my career as a as a lawyer has been based on a couple of original insights, a couple of ideas. You know. One of the most important was, of course, this question that, you know, it can't be the case that mine workers with lung disease aren't entitled to compensation. That can't be the case, but it was the accepted wisdom. Um, 
but the idea and then developing that argument is what you know made all the difference and there are a couple of other examples you know there's still some of them that are pending the ideas that are very clear in my head that I know you know must be right and I know this one must be right it's a question of um, putting to together the to argument finding an advocate who can argue it with conviction and courage and then persuading the right judge mm. but you've got to put all of that together and you don't necessarily win the first time and but it's about pushing those ideas so that is I, I really like doing that and I think that's a very interesting case here I, I doubt it's going to be tried but that's all right we'll try it the next time round so so just in terms of that quantum thing I mean like you mm. say it's important to change the law to include punitive damages for this kind of thing but how do you have you got any quantum in mind and how do you how do you put a value on those miscarriages and those deaths I mean that surely is a fantastically difficult um, thing it's it's extremely difficult and we haven't tried to quantify it at all we, we we're still collecting data so of the thousand odd claimants we we're standing now at about 650 which is pretty good so 650 m- million 650 no, claimants, claimants Sorry, have uh, come forward so far so this notice provision which is kind of um, you know peculiar to the class action process has really worked so uh, you know we were very lucky we got access to the department of health's records on the patients and the facilities Um, and we were able to ensure that mails and telephone calls and letters and emails are sent to those addresses and people urge to come forward and that's been really successful so the claims we're sitting at about 650 we haven't verified all of them we haven't checked them all but um you know i'm i'm fairly confident that we we could get the numbers right up there to 800 or thereabouts i mean you talk about um these cases don't often go to court would you like them Mm. to go to court or is a settlement better for the parties involved because a a settlement is what you reached with the in the silicosis case Mm. You know, um, um, uh, one of the one of the things that we've learned from the silicos and all the other cases is an early settlement is worth a substantial discount. You know, you need to get you need to settle the matter, get the money to the to the victims. So there's always scope for a settlement and a discount. You know, certainty. Um, you know, expedition. Um, money in the pocket is worth twice you know what 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 you might get one day at the end of an expensive and difficult and risky trial so yeah you're definitely looking and open for a settlement but you need you know you need a set of rules and a set of protocols you've got to agree the process um you've got to find each other um and that that takes a while you know you've got to develop a relationship with your opponents i suppose you know there's got to be a you know, there's got to be a kind of a mutual respect and a, and a willingness to talk openly and to engage with each other. We're not there, unfortunately. It is very distant and formalistic. And I think the lawyers have lodged a complaint against me with the Law Society for something. The lawyers from the insurance company or yeah, brands? Yeah, you know, the insurance company. Who are they? Who are those guys? Um, sure, now I'm insulting them by forgetting their names. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's, a pity. that's terrible. No, you mustn't take me by surprise <laughs> like that. No, that's awful. Um, <laughs> well, then let's move on to uh, a different question. I mean, this kind of thing, I mean, taking a case, uh, part of the reason why our legal system seems so inaccessible is because of the cost of it. Mm-hmm. So taking a case like this mm-hmm. to a court, you know, the individual 650 claimants would never have been able to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, how, do you, how do you financially mm-hmm. make that happen? 
um, because I, I feel that for the average person, the, law, the legal system is now totally inaccessible. Yeah, look, whether the uh, the asbestos litigation, which we started in the late 90s, um, the gold mining litigation began 2005, 2006, this case and now the coal mining litigation that we're engaged with, all of it has been the product of um, partnerships with uh, foreign-based law firms that have the money and the resources and typically an expertise in the specific area concerned to, to, to fund the litigation. Without that kind of funding, it's extremely difficult to run large uh, cases like this. You know, you need, you need significant resources and capacity to do this. If you just think of the data storage, you know, storing and managing the data is already a massive task, you know. Mm. Call centers, paralegals, you know, documentation, records. It's a, it's, a, it's a very big undertaking and you can't do it without resources. And it's a lot more expensive than people imagine. So, I mean, I, how much did it cost, the silicosis? How much did it cost over the, or the period the, for which you the fought dis- for them? The disbursements, the direct costs were in excess of 30 million rand. Yeah, which you'll obviously, you'll obviously um, exceed that in this case, I would imagine, given the time that's, that's elapsed since then. Um, well, I'm sure this won't cost 30 million rand. I mean, I, I, I hope this thing is wrapped up before the end of next year. Um, okay. um, you know, so I hope a lot less. But, you know, the, the, the kind of the clock ticks and it's, it's, costing, um, it's costing us about $70,000 a month. That's expensive. Wow. Um, um, Richard, what is, yeah. uh, what is the, the interest of these international law firms to support you and a class action lawsuit in South Africa? Um, I think they, they, they're all kind of liberal Democrat voting people. They make donations. They host you know, fundraisers, and they're, they're, they're Democrats, and they're, they're liberal Democrats. <clears throat> so I think for them to um, get out of America, and America's quite parochial, you know, there are not a lot of people who practice outside. I mean, it's a universe in one, mm. you know. But so for to be engaged and have an opportunity and look and do some work here, I think they find it quite exciting. Um, so I think that's an impulse. <clears throat> there may be a sense among some of them that, you know, well, this could be a very profitable business, but invariably it doesn't turn out like that. It's not, it's not big money by their standards. I mean, you know, Motley Rice, the firm that we're partnered with in Silicosis, they won that famous tobacco litigation, you know, $220 billion. Mm. They recently, I think last year or the year before, they want to, won a, a case against Jordan Bank, a um, billion dollars. Um, you know, we have these, these 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 oil drills that pack up on the Gulf of Mexico and contaminate things. They're running that kind of litigation at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, they're on this opioid thing, acting for cities and states, litigating against the pharmaceutical companies over opioids, you know, which is a massive epidemic there. Mm-hmm. So in the United States, this is really, um, it's big business. It's a, it's a very... You know, they, these are very successful law firms with, with money. I mean, yeah. they, they, they're big and strong. You know, we haven't really got a history of class action lawsuits in this mm-hmm. country at all. Mm-hmm. Um, when I studied it, uh, you know, class actions were just not a South African epidemic. And I suppose to some extent, is it not because 
it hasn't been much of a business. There's little incentive to do this. I mean, why? What has been the the, the barrier to us having more class action lawsuits in <coughs> cases like this? And say, you know, you have Steinoff, you have so many issues in this country where you could have class action lawsuits, and yet they haven't really prevailed. What mm. What's been the point? Well, I think it's I think it's more generally not just class actions. I think litigation is not as big as it ought to be. I mean, access to justice is very limited. Mm. And here you have a curious thing that. Government imagines that the way to give access to justice is to, um, you know, to cut and curtail fees. I mean, this new law practice council, all its rules, the Contingency Fees Act, these strict requirements, you know, ostensibly to reduce legal costs in order to make justice more accessible. It is exactly the opposite effect. And the other one that's absolutely pointless is the judge's conservative attitude is keep the damages small. In South Africa, if you win, you recover party-party costs, which is less than a third of the actual cost. Mm. You know, so litigation is going to cost you as the victim a lot of money. If the damages awards were bigger and the costs awards, if you could recover your full costs, the people would act it. I mean, in the United States, look, if you, you know, if you... If you do, if you're a corporation, you do something wrong. You poison people. You know your bridge collapses, the building falls down, burns down. You know the airplane crashes. There are very serious consequences. So although it sounds like a, you know, free market de- deregulated, etc., the legal system provides a very, very powerful incentive to corporations and individuals to behave themselves. We don't have that here. So, you know, access to justice. It's um, if 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 you come to me with a ten thousand rand crash and bash claim, is it worth your time taking that to court? No, it isn't. It's it's just not worth it. I mean, you don't look at a claim for under a hundred thousand mm. rand, and even that, you know, is like so trivial. Ar- so ironically, something that, uh, or, or maybe a more money grabbing approach um, to to litigation would actually be to South Africans' benefit. Make it make it worthwhile to litigate on be- on poor people's behalf. And that really has been what I've been trying to do. I've been trying to find a way of litigating sustainably on behalf of poor people. So, look, there are two kinds of law. Lo- I mean, if you litigate for poor people in South Africa, you are a funded legal NGO. Mm. You're a funded organization. You're an environmental group, a legal committee. All of those guys depend very heavily on donor funding. So... I don't think that, I mean, they do fantastic work, but it doesn't begin to meet the demand. And of course, donor funding is subject to a whole range of variables. You know, there are things that become into fashionable and things that are not fashionable. Um, you know, they shift around. Uh, they really control the shots. It also, I mean, with no disrespect to my colleagues working in these fields, but the donor fu- funding means you get your salary every month. Mm. You know, and you do it well, and you carry on. You know, we're not a, and um, you know, we're we're ostensibly a for-profit law firm. Um, you know, we we we're trying to. I'm trying to do this on a sustainable basis. Mm. We've never really made any money till now, but that's the idea. And we do rely on some donor funding, especially mm. around the land rights work. But if you look at what we've achieved in the last year, eighteen months in the field of land rights. We're a tiny little firm, um, you know, we're not a donor-funded firm, and we're producing results, mm. you know. So, so, so what, for example, in terms of land rights, what, what have you done in the last year then? Well, there are two really important um, judgments. The one that most people are aware of is this Kolobeni yeah, yeah, yeah. um, right to say no decision, um, you know, which says of communities you may... You, you must be, you must agree, you know, it's not good enough to be consulted, you must agree 
um, to mining on your land, you must do so following your customs and your traditions. As part of that, you had a rather, rather fantastic skirmish with the mining <laughs> minister. Yeah, as part of that thing. You know, it's been very, I think it's been very poorly managed. And, and, and that case does highlight a lot of problems with the NPRDA. And mm. I think increasingly we've seen problems with the NPRDA. It's a very interesting discussion. You know, I, I'm fascinated by the years looking back what led to the NPRDA, what kind of deal was done. What was the price? What were the compromises? What did they wish the parties wish to achieve? And how's it actually worked out? And how has the thing been aligned? I think industry's terribly, terribly disappointed. They had hoped for uh, a minister that allocates rights in a mechanical, ordered, structured way with minimal discretion hmm. to knock people out and squeeze them off and cancel their rights. And it hasn't worked like that. I mean, we see. Uh, Glencore, you know, squeezed out of Optimum. Um, we see it all the time, you know, mining companies having to jump through loops, hoops to, to get licenses and ministers putting all kinds of obstacles in the way. And, and the kind of the Trojan horse is, of course, the, uh, the, the charter hmm. and all those requirements. And that kind of slipped through the gaps there somewhere. And I think it hasn't worked out well, but it's had other consequences. I mean, this first come, first serve principle, use it or lose it principle has had pretty catastrophic consequences. It's um, created a, uh, you know, a hive of corruption. I mean, that a rampant corruption. And it's also led to a fragmentation of the industry and a breakdown mm. into little bits and pieces. So instead of large corporates running and mining in a structured, organized fashion, um, we have millions of little rats and mice chewing away, you know, the best yeah. resources, leaving an environment environmental disaster behind them, you know, violation of communities' rights and workers' rights. And it's it's just not a good and healthy thing. So government has effectively lost control over the mineral resource through this law. I mean, it's a, I think... With disaster. The, it's a disaster. We've lost out in platinum. We're losing out in chrome now. You know, manganese lost out. I mean, it's it's... It has been unbelievably badly managed. Mm. You know, this country should have been booming. Its mining sector should have been booming. The country should have been booming. It hasn't. It's been, we have missed every single mining opportunity. Chrome is running wild right now. What's happening? Illegal chrome miners are shipping you know, hundreds of thousands of tons of chrome all through the border, illegally mined, loaded on big ore trucks, shipped through the border. What happens? Nothing. Mm. No consequences. I mean... How is this possible? Um, so is it's it, ridiculous. Is it in, in arguing or, or representing communities, and you think of the sort of poor communities um, or communities who have access to mineral rights that you actually hope to shape or, or bring a bit of legitimacy or a bit of structure to, maybe yeah. to mining law that, that is actually beneficial to, to everyone, communities yeah. and companies? Well, I mean, is that possible well, through the actions that you undertake? You know, a, a lot of the work in the mining sector and with communities is about, about kind of leveling the playing field. So even though the new right to say no and that other judgment, the Maledu judgment, who deals with compensation, effective, effectively gives communities the right to bargain with the mining companies. Um, a bargaining process between two hugely unequal parties is invariably unequal. You know, it just, it just, that's how the world functions. I mean, mm. unequal partners, unequal results. So our role is typically to try and level the playing fields a bit. It's not about, you know, there's no fair bargain, but if you strengthen, 
if you strengthen your client with knowledge and skills and, uh, you know, legal knowledge, legal mm. skills, a bit of an understanding of how mining works and what it's about, an ability to assess where this company is going and what it's doing and read the contracts, you can significantly improve the outcomes for communities. And that's a good thing. In fact, it's dead easy to improve outcomes for people if they are adequately and properly advised and supported. I was going to ask, I mean, you talk about, I, mean, I, I, I think what you do is very unusual in terms of the legal industry. You talk about access to justice. Many law firms just represent the, the well-held, well-heeled corporates, and that's what the function of the legal industry has been. I mean, you've, you've gone through a completely different route, and that makes you very unusual. You talk about the insights you had when you did law. I mean, what were those insights? When did you decide to start doing this, and how did it, what was your personal, I suppose, progress towards mm. doing what you do? Because it isn't usual. Yeah, uh, look, um, you know, it's just what I've always done. It began the legal clinic in Crossroads, you know, in the Cape during the past law stuff and representing people there. It went on to, you know, the Vile uprisings and the Soweto civic uprisings and, you know, the rent boycotts mm. involved in that kind of large-scale stuff, defending communities against large-scale eviction processes launched by the local authorities against them. And then it kind of went into the um, mining and chemical sectors and, and looking at accidents and incidents. That spreads to kind of communities and mines mm. and workers. And, you know, it's always, it seems to me to be a fairly coherent thing. But the thing about poor people is that, you know, it look, why I think you can do this on a sustainable basis, why you should be able to do it on a sustainable basis is, Although the individual amounts of money aren't significant and although they can't pay you themselves, um, they are so egregiously abused. They are so patently and blatantly abused and their rights so crudely violated that actually their cases are really strong. Mm. You know, the merits are good. And not only are the merits good, there are a lot of victims, you know, so... You can pool together a whole mass of victims with a really good case. Well, slam dunk. I mean, I'm not mm. doing high-risk work in the sense of, you know, I mean, we only do work. You're not work. trying to prove a black hole. You know, I mean, why would I spend my life and spend my energies arguing marginal cases that affect a handful of people when I can act, you know, do strong cases for large numbers of people and have an impact? Because the truth is, you know, these things take time. You can only do so much. And the secret is in choosing the right cases, you know, and a right case is one where the merits are really strong. Um, and remarkably, you know, other lawyers just don't look at this stuff. I mean, they just, they don't seem to appreciate the scope there is. That said, of course, you know, the factors that I spoke about, our cost regime and the way that we award damages doesn't make it attractive, hmm. but I think it can be done. I'm still believing it can be done. Um, and, you know, we need a bit of a help. Like one of the things I'm really interested, a project I'm concerned with is um, establishing a compensation legal advice clinic in Masiru linked to a hospital where, you know, Lesotho citizens who worked in South Africa, mm. were injured, got sick, can come for legal advice, get some medical support at the same time and then process compensation claims. Um, 
talking to the Catholic Church now about it, hoping with them and local mm. agencies to see if we can't put something like that together. I'm convinced that the cost of running a clinic like this would be a tiny fraction of the benefits that we could recover. You know, I mean, there are leads and lags, it takes a while, but I'm convinced that we could bring very, very substantial sums of money into Lesotho mm. for people who haven't been adequately compensated. Mm. Richard, um, uh, have you got a? Have you had a strong team around you um, in your in your firm and f- over the period in, of time in which you find yourself um, mm. arguing these cases, or do you end up being quite alone and quite sort of single-minded in in what you do? Look, the the firm has grown quite a lot the last few years, um, and I have been got into trouble. But I do think you need to hire really smart people, man. You know, smart, enthusiastic people who, who like what they do, who are passionate about it. Clever young people, you mm. know. The rule never hire somebody who's not cleverer than you. You know, I mean, a pretty good principle. Is that one of those insights? On. One of those insights you said yeah, you Yeah, you know, just, <laughs> just hire these clever people. And, I mean, I've got, I've got some remarkably clever people. I don't mean clever in a kind of a, you know, clever and compassionate people who... Mm. Sleep in the rural areas, sleep in the township, sleep with the people, you know, just integrate, just are at home and comfortable and are out there. So, you know, the choice of people is is nice. And they're typically young people, which is also nice. You know, looking at the Tiger Rands case, I I looked at it right from the beginning. And what struck me about it is, you know, that that you talk about the tension between the insurance company and and Tiger Mm -hmm. Brands itself. I found the response was just dismal from a kind of kind of a you know social citizen point of view. They refused mm-hmm. to say what actually happened, and I feel like the lawyers were controlling the process. You can't mm-hmm. say this; you'll admit mm-hmm. liability here. It just made you seem like a terrible corporate citizen. You've done mm-hmm. this damage in society. You won't even admit to what you've done. Mm-hmm. It seemed like such a damaging way for a company to think in terms of your social legitimacy to operate. And a company like Tiger Brands, which sells so many products to society, it seemed like a wholly destructive path to take. Yeah, look, I, I can't advise them on how to do marketing and so on. Um, but what, you know, when it comes to corporations and, 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 and morality, um, you know, one of the things I've found is fairly pointless is to kind of imagine that the world is about good people and bad people. You know, the notion that corporations are evil and individuals are good and, you know, it's good versus bad. I mean, that's just nonsense. Mm. You know, corporations do what they do. And, you know, if you create an environment where corporations can do bad things, they're going to do bad things, you know, otherwise they're going to do good things. But it's not, it's not about moralities. I mean, you know, I see what these corporations do. And it doesn't mean that they're staffed by bad or even people. I mean, there are exceptions. And there are some real sociopaths out there. But, you know, you know companies, it's not a personal, I'm not waging a war against anybody. And what's interesting is, you know, there's some of these companies I've litigated against for literally decades, Sassel and, and, and Anglo chief among them. You know, there's, you know, I understand their problems and their difficulties. I understand how complex these structures are and how difficult it is to implement. Um, but there are certainly better people to work with than these fly-by-night companies, you know, with some obscure uh, shareholders based in Eastern Europe or in Malta or, you know, mm. these tax havens, these things mm. that just, up and around, you can't work out what the hell they are, particularly unlisted companies. You know, I'd rather work with a listed company or litigate against a listed company than unlisted one. I mean, this secrecy and the lack of transparency is terrible and it's dangerous and makes it really hard to deal with these people. 
Um, you know, and these larger corporations also have the advantages that they have their own codes and they subscribe to codes. I mean, we place a lot of reliance on the international finance corporations' guidelines on social environmental um, sustainability. Now, the only companies that subscribe to those are, are, are the companies that access World Bank or IFC funding for, for projects, and that's mainly the larger mining and construction mm. companies. They subscribe to this code. Now, you know, if you want to do, if you want to improve environmental and social record of mining in South Africa, adopt the IFC codes. Make them part of our mining culture. Impose them on everybody. There you've got a standard, you've got a norm. Instead, we have, you know, idiot ministers coming up with all kinds of new ideas. What's this latest charter of his, you know, community trust. Do, do you know how community trust works? Do you know what it takes to ensure that it isn't robbed and stolen? Do you think you just set this stuff up you know clearly he, he has no understanding of how things mm. works and i mean this charter is a joke i mean and yet it's so interesting to see the minerals council say oh we've got the best mining minister we've ever had in fact neil froneman said to me a couple of weeks ago and, and i thought i said to him are you kidding uh what do you think or do you think we're just heading no, back yeah. into he another had Zwani, right and by comparison <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. and i'm sure then when when Gwede sits down with neil i think it's a very kind of uh, cordial and friendly and supportive and no neil we're uh, you know we want to see stability what well, i mean Gwede is quick with his mouth he talks fast mm. he's clever you know he's consummate kind of politician he's smart and smooth so I'm sure they, they get along just fine and he's saying the right kind of things. But truly, he knows nothing about mining. I mean, he hasn't a clue. Mm. <laughs> you know. I hope he's listening. <laughs> <laughs> he really doesn't. I mean, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no, I mean, his advisor, um, Nutrina, I mean, there's a guy who knows something, mm. you know. Um, there's a guy with some kind of history and a background. I mean, was dodged at one stage, but he's like a veteran, you know, he's a, <laughs> But he's not even DG or anything. He's just a kind of a special advisor to the minister. And if you look around, you look at Department of Health, you look at the Department of Mining, Agriculture, Land Reform, there is no capacity. There's no depth. There's no understanding. I mean, there's no institutional memory. It's a catastrophe. So mining is bad. You look at land reform, even it's worse. worse. Stumbling from one Disaster. idiot yeah. policy to the next without any kind of insight or understanding without learning. I mean, you know, if the record for, for, for land reform in this country must be, the successful projects must be less than 5%. Mm. I mean, Richard, we have to wrap things Sorry. up, but if you had, <laughs> I don't want to, but yeah. um, I mean, if, if there was one thing that you could do to, uh, I don't know, uh, change the legal system in South Africa or change the outcomes that we get in things like land reform or mining policy, what, what do you think it, it might be? build a strong and capable state capable no but something realistic <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah no we need a professional civil service we've got to put an end to cadre deployment and we've got to put an end to uh, you know quite frankly a lot of this BEE stuff is just a license to to loot and damage and destroy I mean we've got to reconsider this thing we've got to think about how we do this um, which is not, I mean, empowerment is a good thing. You're saying that the way it's instructed is, is been... It's the cover. It's the cover that you use for making these bad appointments and appointing these bad contractors. Oh, cadre I deployment, mean, yeah. cadre deployment and kind of favoring each other, you know. How do, how do you expect to run a government if you don't make appointments on merit? Hmm. You know, I mean, imagine any organization that doesn't appoint on merit. I mean, it's going to be a disaster.
And the truth is people are appointed on their basis, their political relationships, their filial relationships with politicians and powerful people. They are not being appointed in merit, and that has resulted in a state that whose capacity is very, very seriously degraded, and yeah. that accrues to all our prejudice. Yeah. Well, on that note, we'll leave it there. Richard, thank you very much for joining us in studio this afternoon for taking care of business. Richard Spoor is of Spoor Inc. and a passionate and committed South African. Thank you.